Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app and most podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. With you for the next 60 minutes as we'll discuss some of the latest headlines connected to the Giants and across the NFL. Later on, we'll discuss some of the latest developments with respect to the potential structure of training camp and the preseason. We'll also answer several of your submitted questions, so stay tuned for that. But we start by continuing our opponent team previews. The Giants will host the Cleveland Browns on December 20th in Week 15 at MetLife Stadium. Last season, Cleveland went 6-10 and and finished third in the AFC North. To break down the Browns and what to expect from them in 2020, we are now joined by Nate Ulrich, who covers the team for the Akron Beacon Journal. Nate, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Uh, pretty good. Hanging in there. Thanks, guys, for having me. Uh... You know, eager to talk some football with you and hope we get to it. Absolutely. Well, our pleasure to have you on the program. And Nate, I want to start with the quarterback situation. And the reason it being a situation is because I think most people are hoping that Baker Mayfield bounces back from what was somewhat of a sophomore slump. The one thing, Nate, that jumps out to me that I think a lot of people overlook He has had so many head coaches and coordinators and voices in his head over the span of his first two seasons, and now you're adding Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt into the mix. I guess I think of Alex Smith, if you recall, with the Niners and how he had so many coordinators in his first seven seasons of the league. How concerning, Nate, is that, that there's been so much turnover on the offensive side of the ball when it comes to the coaching philosophy? It's definitely concerning. I mean, the lack of continuity has been something that's been plaguing the Browns for a long, long time. And, you know, Kevin Stefanski comes in here, and and they really just need to give this guy a chance to be a stabilizing force. Um, And, you know, Jimmy and Dee Haslam, since they bought the team in, in, in 2012, their MO has been turnover. I mean, they fired two coaches uh, just after one season, Freddie Kitchens being the most recent. And, you know, Kevin Stefanski's the sixth full-time head coach uh, since they bought the team. So it's been that way in the coaching ranks and the front office. And you look around the division, I mean, the Steelers with Mike Tomlin, uh, the Ravens with John Harbaugh, the Bengals obviously have had uh, had Martin Lewis forever, but now it's Zach Taylor for the last couple of years. But there has been continuity uh, from the, the Browns' main competitors, and the Browns just haven't had. They have been the complete opposite. And, you know, Baker Mayfield's just one of many players who's had to deal with that. And, and, and of course, it's huge because of the quarterback position and learning these new systems. But, you know, Kevin Stefanski is bringing a scheme to the Browns um, that historically has been very quarterback-friendly, uh, and it has a lot to do with running the ball. It's that Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, Gary Kubiak – scheme that's powered by uh you know wide zone blocking that sets up play action passing so they think that baker mayfield's really going to benefit from it and you know the browns uh certainly have to hope that that he does and that they can get some continuity for a change well let's stick with mayfield because new offensive coordinator alex van pelt has certainly had experience with some pretty good quarterbacks had andy dalton with cincinnati just before this job and then of course a few years ago had Aaron Rodgers. So as he takes the controls for Baker Mayfield, what does he need to do to get this guy to have a breakout third season in the NFL? Because at this point, it was up, it was down. Where does that arrow turn in year three? Well, I think that a huge part of it is uh, you know, Mayfield just had 
some kind of crazy um, regression last year because he, he just his fundamentals got sloppy and a big part of it was his footwork. His footwork was just out of whack all season. He talked about it repeatedly. I mean, it wasn't a secret. He, he admitted it. And Freddie Kitchens, uh, being a first-year head coach, and Ryan Lindley being a, a very inexperienced quarterbacks coach, it was his first season as an NFL quarterbacks coach, even though he played quarterback in the NFL, they just couldn't get it straightened out with Baker last year. They just could not get him back on track with the, with the footwork. And he was uncharacteristically inaccurate as, as a result of his feet being messed up. Uh, you know, we saw the pinpoint accuracy in 2018, his rookie season, when he came in and, and only actually played 13 and a half games because he did not begin the season as a starter. He was behind Tyrod Taylor. Anyway, he comes in 13 and a half games, and then he sets the NFL uh, rookie uh, single season touchdown pass record with 27. And that had everybody thinking this is why they picked him number one overall. He comes back. Footwork is a mess for some reason. It just never gets figured out. And he has, what, 22 touchdowns and 21 interceptions. Uh, you know, and it, it just, it, it was a, a huge problem now Alex Van Pelt comes in and the first thing he does with Baker Mayfield one of the first things he does with Baker Mayfield says we're going to change your footwork it was a problem last year I've worked with a bunch of quarterbacks including Aaron Rodgers and I am convinced that I I know the footwork that works best in this scheme it's kind of the the, the west coast quarterback footwork is what Alex Van Pelt, Pelt basically um describes it as and and, and a big change is it's just from the very beginning, they're changing Baker Mayfield's stance. He's going to have his left foot forward in shotgun instead of his right. He has never done this before. And they're taking out a big stagger step uh, that he has in his drop back from under center. So they're really concentrating on that. And, of course, guys, I mean, what a unique offseason, right? The, the COVID-19 pandemic has prevented coaches from getting the hands-on instruction with players, but they've been doing all this via video baker's been taking the instruction uh, you know virtually recording himself going through the footwork sending it back to alex van pelt who actually has ended up using a, an app that he uh he was uh using to work on his own golf swing and he's using that app to kind of uh circle and draw things uh as baker mayfield goes through his footwork and they're they're doing it. That's how they've done it in the offseason to get ready. So it'll be interesting to see how this footwork really looks and how polished it is once they get them on the grass. It sounds like that's a pretty significant pair of adjustments that he's got to make. This was not the offseason to have to undergo a reconstruction. You're exactly right. I mean, that's why, you know, I think that they've got some good coaches in here who have identified some problems and Baker's bought in and all those things are really positive. But... Again, unprecedented times, guys, where they can't get their hands on them. It's going to be different when they're trying to coach them up on this stuff in person. It's also amazing how creative and innovative coaches have to be. And as you just mentioned, using apps for golf swings to correct footwork is just the latest example of what all 32 teams are dealing with. The other factor 
in addition to the footwork that I think you could point to, Nate, that didn't certainly help Baker's cause last year was pass protection. Sacked 40 times. That's certainly a combination of the QB as well as the O-line, but they've completely revamped the tackle position. They brought in Jack Conklin from Tennessee, and they drafted Jedrick Wills out of Alabama. How much do you think that can revamp and change the outlook of the overall offensive line this season? Well, it needed to happen, and it did, and it can revamp the overall outlook of the offensive line. Uh, but again, there is a, a big curveball here. Jack Conklin, he's established, you know, and he, they expect him to be good right away. He, he played in his own scheme uh, for the Titans, and he's a, a great fit uh, for what they're going to do, very similar schematically. So he's going to come in and be that right tackle, but then the left tackle, Jedrick Wills, that's where the curveball comes in. He played right tackle in high school and in college at the University of Alabama. They're confident in his athleticism and, and, and his, his willingness to, to move over to left tackle and his desire to get it uh, figured out. And, and you know, the, the, the former Browns 10-time Pro Bowl left tackle Joe Thomas is extremely excited and happy about the pick of Wills and helping him behind the scenes and thinks he can make this transition. Bill Callahan, the, the new Browns offensive line coach, one of the most respected offensive line minds in the sport, also is enthusiastic and optimistic about Wills and this transition. But again, here we go. This is a weird time where they can't coach a guy like they normally would, and they're going to get him in there with very, very uh, few reps uh, compared to what they would have under normal circumstances and and see if he can do it. So, you know, the tackle on paper, uh, both tackle spots should be a lot better than Greg Robinson last year at left tackle and Chris Hubbard at right tackle. By the way, they did restructure Chris Hubbard and kept him. So he's now a backup swing tackle instead of their starting right tackle. So he gives them some nice depth there. Um, you know, if he's your third tackle, you're doing okay. Uh, but Wills, there's a big question mark there just because he hasn't done it before. And, you know, the, the coaches haven't been able to get with him yet. Well, we went from quarterback to offensive line. Let's continue with the passing game. You've got the always colorful Odell Beckham Jr. on this team. And now David Njoku apparently has talked about wanting a trade. Uh, could you kind of delve into the dynamic uh, of, of what this poor first-year head coach is going to have to deal with with already having some ruffling waters from, from the start tight end? Well, it's definitely one of the things that Freddie Kitchens was not able to handle, and that's the big personalities, a lot of talent, a lot of guys wanting the ball, and you saw it blow up in his face. I mean, in Arizona, they're losing to the Cardinals, and Jarvis Landry's yelling at Freddie Kitchens on the sideline. You know, Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry throughout the season made it clear they want to be more involved because, you know, after losses, they look back at it and say, if you get us the ball, we have a better chance to win because we are dynamic playmakers and we can score touchdowns and change the outcome. So, yeah, I mean, it continues. I mean, the Browns are stacked at, at the playmaking positions because John Dorsey came in here, inherited a, a team that had gone 1-31, and he comes in as GM and just loads up the talent. And they have a backfield of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, they have Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. They had tight ends like David Njoku, a former first-round pick, and then they signed Austin Hooper this offseason, two-time Pro Bowler from the Falcons to join the tight end room, to lead the tight end room, and then they draft a guy, Harrison Bryant, in the fourth round. So you got all these guys, 
and only so many targets, only so many carries to go around. And Kevin Stefanski, Kevin Stefanski's already had these, um, you know, powwows with his coaching staff about how are we going to distribute the ball? Who do we want to feature in certain matchups? It's going to change week to week. Um, but we have to keep in mind that we want to get our guys fed and we want to everybody to have an important role. Um, but obviously team success has to be the priority and individual success is going to take a back seat. And that can be hard for, for guys sometimes, especially after a loss. That's when you start to hear the complaints. So that is something that he's going to have to manage. That is challenging. And as for David Njoku, you know, it's interesting and really surprising, guys, that it's gone this way because he got in the doghouse of Freddie Kitchens last year. He had a broken wrist, uh, you know, at the beginning of the season and had to have surgery and, and was out for 10 games. And then they, they kind of clashed and they, and they disagreed along the way of his comeback. And there was, you know, a dispute uh, between him and Freddie basically about when he was ready to return for action. Njoku kept saying, I'm ready, I'm ready. They didn't play him right away when he said he thought he was ready. So, um, you know, Njoku ends up getting in the doghouse. But then there's a regime change. Kitchens is fired. John Dorsey agrees with owners to part ways after he, you know, did not accept the diminished role that they offered him. And in comes Andrew Barry as GM, Kevin Stefanski's head coach. They praise David Njoku. They exercise his fifth-year option. And, you know, yes, they added Hooper. And, yes, they did draft uh, Harrison Bryant in the fourth round, like I mentioned. But Stefanski uses 12 personnel a ton. I mean, 57% of the time as Minnesota Vikings offensive coordinator, he used multiple tight ends. So Njoku is a big part of the plans, yet he wants out. So it's really interesting uh, that it's gone this way because he really did get a mulligan and new life with this new regime. It's interesting to listen, Nate, to you describe the dynamics on offense between the coaches and the players because I think the other thing that can't be overlooked is the fact that Freddie Kitchens was the head coach and also the play caller. Kevin Stefanski now, who also has been a play caller, is a first-time NFL head coach. How do you see that playing out this season? Because we always have the debate. If you're a head coach, should you also call plays? Should you just focus on overseeing the entire team? How do you think Kevin's going to go about that, especially with all of these well-known personalities on the team? I think Kevin wants to let Alex Van Pelt call the plays. Um, which did surprise me first, I'll admit, because I'm just used to seeing these offensive coordinators get hired by the Browns and they come in and they call their own plays. They say, that's why you hired me and I'm going to do it. Uh, Hugh Jackson, um, you know, he did it for the first couple of years. Uh, Pat Shermer, uh, yeah. Freddie Kitchens, you know, there's been a bunch of guys. Uh, so, you know, Kevin Stefanski comes in and actually January 14th, they introduce him and he says, you know what, uh, we'll see. We'll do whatever was best for the Browns. And you think, oh, that sounds great. But then he stays consistent with that. He hires Alex Van Pelt, and he says, I want Alex Van Pelt to call plays in practices, in preseason games. We'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, then, yeah, he can be the play caller. Uh, you know, head coach has a lot on his plate. So I think that that is the way he's been leaning the whole time. And I, I – I hate to keep saying how crazy these times are, but they just are, guys. And I wonder if 
the pandemic and a reduced preseason and wiping out of OTAs, um, and who knows how training camp exactly will look, I wonder if that will affect the decision that Kevin Stefanski has. But I think his original intent was to, to really try to let Alex Van Pelt call the plays and be more of that CEO head coach. I think that's what the Browns really liked it about him. I think more than just what he did as Vikings offensive coordinator, they were just focused on the leadership, the character that they thought he would bring. Um, because, guys, they were a mess last year. No organization, no discipline, no plan, no identity, no structure. And I think the, the number one thing they were looking for is a guy who could come in and, and address those huge big-picture questions, more so than a guy who can just come in and call a successful offense. You know, it's curious to me, you talk about a, a team that needs to find an identity. They'd like to spread the ball around, but they've got guys who all want the ball Yet we know that Nick Chubb, after last year, when he touched it over 300 times from scrimmage, is a very effective back in more than one way, by the way. So are they better off trying to feed him and make him the focal point of the offense at the risk of maybe ticking off some of these other skill position guys who are going to scream for the pigskin themselves? My opinion is yes. I think Nick Chubb is, is such a good player, um, and this scheme really is predicated on you know running behind that wide zone blocking and I think Nick Chubb is such a good fit for it and I think that you you, you just help Baker Mayfield so much by doing it you set up the play action and, and and guys what I didn't touch on earlier and I probably should have I kind of focused on footwork with Mayfield but play action is a big deal statistically even though Mayfield struggled last year I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but his play action passing was just dramatically better than any other kind of drop back. So the, there, there's a lot of reasons to believe why this scheme will be good for him. Number one is the heavy use of play action. He, he's done really well uh, when, when summoned to, to, to use that type of attack. So, I think that, the yeah, it should be based on Nick Chubb. And, and Kareem Hunt is a really good uh, running back, too, and really is, is probably going to end up being their number three receiver. I mean, he was suspended for half of last season. He came in, and when it was all said and done, he finished third on the team in catches despite missing eight games. So he was behind uh, uh, Landry and Beckham. So I think that... They have really good running backs, and yeah, they should be the focal point first and foremost. And then you have to you have to be able to spread it around. You have to be able to to manage it all, and it's a huge challenge for Kevin Stefanski. But I would say that yeah, the running game and Nick Chubb should be the bread and butter to begin with. We're talking with Nate Ulrich, who covers the Browns for the Akron Beacon Journal. Nate, I want to switch gears to the defensive side of the ball. 22nd overall last season, allowed the third most rushing yards in the league. So clearly they had their own issues, but you could also argue the offense didn't necessarily help their cause. Miles Garrett, Olivier Vernon on paper, that's a nice one-two punch. Problem is, Garrett gets suspended late in the season. Vernon struggled to stay healthy. He wound up missing six games. Is it... As simple to say, you bring both of those guys back healthy and Garrett not in trouble via the suspension and all of a sudden the rest of the defense feeds off of that, or is that simplifying it too much? Well, I think that's exactly what the Browns are hoping. It's, it's funny because 
you could say this about a lot of the you know position groups on the team, but definitely defensive line. Um, it was a microcosm for the team. Really talented, but underachieved, and was a disappointment. You know, Freddie Kitchens, for you know all the things that he said last year that, that were kind of weird. I think that he really said some things that made sense about the defensive line when he said that he expects it to be the strength of the team. You know, you have Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at them and think, wow, what a receiving tandem. You have the running backs you have, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt I just talked about. But that defensive line had, had you know, two defensive ends coming off Pro Bowl seasons. Uh, Sheldon Richardson, who's been a really good player and has Pro Bowl uh you know, resume and uh, Larry Ogunjobi, who was coming off his first uh, full season as a starting nose tackle and played well in 2018. So there was just so much promise there. And, you know, Vernon was plagued by injury. Uh, like you said, he played 10 games, but he was only healthy for like eight of them. He played hurt in a couple of games and, and really could barely move, but tried to gut it out. You know, he had a, a sprained knee. I think it was week eight against the Broncos, and it just derailed his season. And, you know, obviously Miles Garrett had 10 sacks in 10 games. He swings the helmet, connects with Mason Rudolph. He's suspended for the rest of the season. And the Browns ended up having to play some, you know, defensive linemen. who They basically got off the street. And, you know, the defense was a shell of itself down the stretch. They lost four of the final six games. You know, the, the rest is history. But, yeah, I mean, they – they obviously uh, think that Miles Garrett is going to bounce back well and continue to be a really special player. They started talking contract extension with him this spring. Um, they expressed interest in Jadavian Clowney, uh, but he remains a free agent and didn't really go anywhere. And they just restructured Vernon's contract to bring him back and, and pair him with Miles Garrett again. So this is a, another group that's really kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're really talented. They didn't do well last year, but there was extenuating circumstances with the suspension of Garrett and the injury of Vernon. And, and they're thinking that if they can get these guys on the field, they're going to be pretty good. Plus they really did upgrade the depth. Um, Andrew Berry signed Adrian Claiborne as, as a roto- rot- rotational defensive end. Uh, and he's been pretty good in that role. And then he, uh, he, he beefed up the interior behind uh, Richardson and Ogunjobi. He ended up signing Andrew Billings from the Bengals. He's been, he's been a starter the past two years. And then he drafted Jacob Phillips in the third round out of LSU. So he added two defensive tackles there. So I think the depth is better. And they've got all four starters back from a really talented group. And uh, I think that if you're looking at the defense, that is, is by far the, the, the strength and the source of optimism. Well, I wonder how high the expectations are for the secondary, though, because they've invested a lot in terms of draft capital. The, the corners, Denzel Ward was a one, Greedy Williams was a two, Grant Delpit was a second rounder this year. Some people thought he might have actually challenged McKinney as the best safety in this draft. So I have to believe they feel like they've got a lot of potential back there. I think so. Um, you know, Denzel Ward and Greedy Williams, um, they were hurt last year too. They, they actually, it was one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of. They both pulled hamstrings in the same practice and missed like four games apiece. So um, that, that was a problem. But, you know, Ward made a Pro Bowl as a rookie 
fourth fourth overall pick in 2018 and has been a good player but hasn't been able to stay on the field consistently yet yet concussion issues this first season and then the the leg injuries last year greedy williams he was okay as a second round pick rookie last year um but they definitely have something to prove. Those guys definitely have, have some redemption they can chase this year. They just they were they were they were okay when healthy, but weren't I, the tandem that I think people thought they could be. Um, and you know the Browns brought in a new uh, nickelback in Kevin Johnson, a former first round pick in free agency. Uh, they got rid of T.J. Carey, who was a pretty good player for them. Uh, but you know it, there it was a it was a let's look at the contract and what we have allocated to this position uh, type move. And then uh, safety was really interesting guys because Demarius Randall had a really good 2018 season. He had a, a, a poor season last year. Another guy who got in Freddie kitchen's doghouse. Um, and they let him walk in free agency and they basically drafted, drafted Grant Delpit to, to become that free safety. And they signed a couple guys to become strong safety for him, and, and that's uh, Carl Joseph and uh, Andrew Sandejo. So they have some guys back there, uh, you know, at, at the safety position who I think can, can get the job done, but there's just a lot of new faces in the secondary as well. So, you know, it's not like the defensive line where you see – these guys with with really impressive resumes coming back there there's still a lot of question marks in the secondary even though there's also a lot of potential Nate as you mentioned when you look at the Browns defense on paper you clearly focus on that defensive line you talk about the upside the youth of the secondary and then I look at the linebacking core and the one name that's not there anymore is Joe Schobert, who's been really a staple of the middle of the defense over the last few years. Kudos to him. He tested free agency and got paid by the Jacksonville Jaguars. How significant of a loss is Schobert, and maybe how much is that being overlooked this offseason? Well, he's by far their, their biggest uh, loss in free agency. And, you know, Schobert, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of mixed opinions on him. He's a pretty good player. Like he made he made a Pro Bowl, uh, you know, in in 2017, and actually, you know, he he was better the next season. So I and didn't get any Pro Bowl recognition. So that you know, it's funny how that works out. But he he basically he, he missed like three games with a hamstring injury. But he, other than that, he basically he played virtually every snap. I mean, he called the defense. He was like a coach on the field, super smart. Um, you know, obviously, you guys are familiar with uh, Greg Williams being the defensive coordinator of the New York Jets. Loved Joe Schober, just absolutely loved him, and couldn't say enough good things about him. Said he, they, he and his son Blake Williams thought that Schober was the smartest player they've ever had at that position in their system, and Schober really was a, a, a just a a guy you could rely on. And so he's gone. And now the linebacking core is the biggest glaring weak spot on the roster on paper. Um, DJ Goodson comes in, you know, a former giant who was with the Packers last year. And, you know, if you look at his snap counts, it's like he played, you know, a third of the snaps most season. One season he almost played half the snaps, but not nearly what Joe Schobert did. And, and they're going to be really relying on him to, 
to do more than he ever has, I think. And, you know, they, they also have uh, Mac Wilson, who played uh, a lot last year after Christian Kirksey, who is a, a team captain uh, and, a, and a reliable player for them. He went down early in the season with a, a pectoral injury, and they actually cut Kirksey after the season. So it's not just Schobert leaving, but Kirksey, the two main linebackers uh, in recent years. So, you know, they got Mac Wilson. They got Sione Takitaki, a third-round pick from last year who barely played on defense. So there's just there's just question marks across the board, and then they, they went ahead and they drafted a guy, um, Jacob Phillips, in the third round from LSU. So um, I might have said Jacob Phillips earlier, guys. That Jordan Elliott's a defensive tackle from Missouri who they drafted in the third round. Then right after that, uh, nine picks later, they picked Jacob Phillips um, to try to supplement the linebacking course. So basically they've got unproven guys uh, in, in – in, in the linebacking core, and they've got B.J. Goodson, who they're they're gonna hope he can really step up and and, and be more of a, a you know every down kind of guy. You know, he might he might not be that every down kind of guy. He hasn't been yet, um, but they say that opportunity is there for him to to play more than he ever has. And obviously, they're missing that every down kind of guy in Joe Schobert. So they, the thing is, they don't really know who's gonna play where. So you know, who's the Mike? Who's the Will? Who's the Sam? I mean, we talked to is the Browns media core, the defensive coordinator, Joe Woods, who's new, and Jason Tarver, a new linebackers coach. And and they're like, we have no idea. We, we've been doing these virtual meetings with guys. We've been cross-training them virtually. Um, but we really need the guys to get to practice before we know who's going to fit where. So the linebacking core is a huge mystery. On the flip side, Nate, I think they're very solid on specials. Not only do they have all their key guys coming back, but coordinator Mike Prefer, who I'm a big fan of, many years ago he was an assistant with the Giants. Uh, that guy knows how to get things done. Yeah, he does. It's one of the few coaches uh, retained from uh, last year's coaching staff. And so, yeah, they have uh, guys coming off pretty good rookie seasons, uh, especially the, the punter, Jamie Gillen, the Scottish Hammer, with one of the better nicknames in the NFL. Um, he really had a tremendous uh, rookie season, and uh, he's a former you know rugby player uh, who's really fun to watch and has a great personality. He's one of the one of the great stories on the Browns. Um, and uh, Austin Cyber uh, also, uh, who he was a rookie fifth round pick last year, he actually had a, a, a horrible training camp. Just he was just missing extra points and all the time, and just but then somehow like just in the nick of time started to get it together, made the team. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty good for him. So those guys are back. And then the thing that they didn't have at all, guys, last year, and, and Prefer does know what he's talking about and was very open and lamented it repeatedly last year, they just didn't have, did not have a presence in the return game. So, um, you know, they signed JoJo Natson, who was with the Rams, uh, and he has some good production on his resume. And then they uh, drafted a wide receiver in the sixth round out of Michigan, Donovan Peoples-Jones, and they they think he really could bring something to the return game as well. So between those two guys and Peoples-Jones and Nats, and they're hoping to, to have a much better threat in the return game than they did last season.
Yeah, Donovan Peoples-Jones certainly has a nice track record out of Michigan, and I'm sure Kevin Stefanski is going to hear from Odell Beckham from our time covering him with the Giants that he's going to have an itch to return a punt or a kickoff here or there. So it's certainly good to have multiple options on special teams. He is Nate Ehrlich, who covers the Browns for the Akron Beacon Journal. Nate, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Look forward to talking you down the road and hope you continue to stay safe and healthy. Thanks so much. All right, Thanks, Nate. guys. Take care. Thanks again to Nate Ulrich, who covers the Browns for the Akron Beacon Journal for breaking down Cleveland, what to expect from that team in 2020. And some interesting nuggets, Paul, that I think Nate threw out. Where I want to start is, and this to me is a storyline that has not been talked about, I think on a national scale, is the fact that Baker Mayfield's footwork is something that new offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt noticed after studying his film from last season. And that's something that they've been emphasizing and working on heavily through an app that Alex Van Pelt used to fix his golf swing and that Baker Mayfield is videotaping himself and showing it to Alex Van Pelt through the app and they're going back and forth. That was not something that we heard about as to why Baker took a step back in 2019. So I thought that was a very interesting insight. And Van Pelt's got a great track record in terms of some of the other quarterbacks that he's worked with, including Aaron Rodgers. So, you know, I think that bodes quite well for Baker Mayfield, hopefully making a jump back up here in 2020. That was certainly the most intriguing element of the interview, I thought, because you're correct. I had not heard a word about this, and it's incredibly important because when you consider the dip that Mayfield's play showed during his second season in the league, and if they're attributing a big part of that to his footwork, well, then obviously it's got to be fixed. Uh, As I said to, to him, though, a heck of a bad time to have to fix footwork when you can't be on the field with your coaches. Now, I will say this. Alex Van Pelt, we know from his time in the National Football League uh, when he played with the uh, the Chiefs and the Bills, and I guess, you know, I guess he first came in with the Steelers, as I recall, but he he didn't really play with them. Uh, He's had enough of experience in the league at the position where he's not just a chalkboard guy. He's somebody who actually played the position in the league before. So he truly does understand not only the mechanics of the position, but he also has a very good inclination as to what Mahomes is feeling and how he has to make those adjustments. In other words, Mayfield, you meant. I think you said Patrick Mahomes. Oh, I said Mahomes? (laughs) Slip of the tongue. Well, he's on everybody's mind because of his new contract. Tell me about it. No, obviously Mayfield. Because here's the thing. I I believe that coaches who never played the position, I don't want to say that they're at a disadvantage, but they can't necessarily, despite the fact that they understand what the right things are to do, they can't necessarily share in the frustrations or the difficulties that a player has while he's trying to learn how to make those adjustments. I think all valid points, and it reminds me of actually, not to get off topic because I want to cover a few other things with respect to our conversation with Nate, but there is a distinct difference, Paul, when you are being taught by somebody that played that position. For example, what we talk about with the Giants this offseason, the fact that Mark Colombo is a former offensive lineman, not to take anything away from the previous coaches on the Giants staff, but I think there is something to be said when you have somebody in the film room breaking down film, he's 
been through the trenches. He's battled at that position. I do think that sends perhaps a slightly different message to the players that are in the room because it may have a little bit more meaning and substance behind it. Well, if nothing else, a coach who's played the position before can say, look, I know exactly what you're telling me when you say you're having difficulty adapting to the new things that I'm telling you about. Because guess what? I did the same thing, and I had trouble trying to get my footwork this way too, and this is how I did it. Sometimes it is that little extra piece of experience that that coach can use to uh, improve the clarity, if you will, uh, of the position and of the the adjustment or the, the tweaking that has to be done with the current player. Well, speaking of tweaking, Cleveland, once again, tweaking its coaching staff because here we mm. go again, the revolving door of coaches, coordinators. Kevin Stefanski now is the man in charge in Cleveland. I think he's done a really good job as a developmental coach in Minnesota who worked his way up, and I think it's great now that he finally has an opportunity as a head coach. I just wonder a few things as we talked with Nate. Will he be able to get a good read on all of these colorful personalities in Cleveland, which has been an issue for previous coaches? That's number one. And number two, will the big names on this roster click with this new offense, which they're clearly not going to have as much time on the field to work with as perhaps previous off-seasons, because I think it goes without saying, Paul, Cleveland has a great deal of talent. If you evaluate them based on paper, I'd put the Browns up there, especially on the offensive side of the ball, with the best of them in the league. But you know, paper does not win games. It's about chemistry. It's about guys getting a feel for one another. It's egos being put to side. So I don't know whether or not there's enough time this offseason for all of those obstacles and hurdles to be moved to the side. So while I think Cleveland, once again, is a team with a lot of potential and upside, I think they still may be a year away before perhaps everything truly clicks. Well, I think the first thing that that I'd like to say is we heard from our our writer friend that the Browns did not necessarily uh, play under control last year. There were a lot of things that were kind of running amok, especially once they started to lose games. So I would say to you this, they've got a big mountain to climb here. I'm not interested in the back of their football cards or the paper stat lines that you can quote me for the next hour and a half. What I'm saying is this. A, with Stefanski in charge, if he cannot corral the personalities in that locker room, and there are enough of them. We've already discussed them earlier in this program. That is going to be a problem, especially considering that the staff has clearly decided that the offense runs through Chubb. I mean, if, if they don't get off to a, a winning streak, okay, they're going to have griping all over again, and it's going to be a problem because if this staff rightfully believes that the running game sets up everything and will ultimately not just be good for Mayfield, but be good for the team as they try to win ball games. Well, I'm not so sure that he's got a bunch of players who believe in that and who buy that. You've got some guys there who have that disease of me and are very interested in making these sports center highlights every weekend and like the endorsement deals and like the flash and the spotlight. That's, that's, that's not good. That's a clash of, of team mentality, especially when that team mentality 
relies on the running back and doesn't necessarily rely on the QB, the tight end, or the wide receivers. Well, it's an interesting parallel that you just threw out. I will say this, and this is just me thinking about the parallels between the Vikings, where Kevin Stefanski's coming from, Paul, versus what he's now working with in Cleveland. He is coming from a team where they did have two high-profile wide receivers in terms of Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs. Now, Diggs had some issues in terms of not getting the ball enough in his eyes. Remember early last season, right around, if you recall, actually when they were playing the Giants, and then all of a sudden, you know, he really started to break out. Now, does Kevin Stefanski, from that experience, does that put him in a better position then to deal with the likes of Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry? Also, through Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry's lens, do they say to themselves, hey, our head coach is coming from a scheme where they ran the ball effectively with Dalvin Cook. When Dalvin Cook was hurt, they had Latavius Murray and Jarek McKinnon. That team went to the playoffs with Case Keenum, who, oh, by the way, Paul, is on the Cleveland roster backing up Baker Mayfield. What I'm saying is, I think if you've got a proven track record in this league and you're big enough as a player to say, hey, the new guy coming in, he's worked with talented wide receivers where the running game was the heart and soul of the offense. They won football games. He's yielded results. Is that enough, Paul, to help his cause getting through to the players in year one? I don't think so because Stefanski does not have a head coach's resume that has littered with championship games and Super Bowls. And therefore, you're talking about players needing to be big enough to be able to buy in to a guy who does not have a proven head coach championship track record, you are asking for a lot. I don't see it happening. If if they get off to a, a four or five, uh, five and one, let's say start, they don't even have to win five in a row. Let's say they just get off to a five and one start. Well, it's going to be really easy for everybody to be happy and dancing in the end zone and all that other stuff. But if it doesn't start that way, look out. Just look out. That, that is a team that still has a bunch of personalities who are just itching to cause trouble. Well, I look at Cleveland, you got a lot of guys who are extremely passionate and extremely talented. And to your point, you win, winning solves everything. That's sure the old cliche, Paul. So the bottom line is, if they're winning games and it's the rushing attack that's doing the heavy lifting, I think everybody is able to put their ego aside and say, hey, guys, we're winning football games. It's to your point where you're leaning on maybe one facet of a team, whether it be on offense or defense, it's not getting the job done. That's when all of a sudden you got to worry about making sure you can balance the ego, maintain the talent across the board, because then guys are not seeing the results. So to me, I agree with you. I think the big test for Stefanski will be if he can win a few games early, I think that helps get the message across to the entire roster. If it's more up and down, that's when perhaps you have some more hurdles thrown your way. Well, you're right. There's no question about it, Lance. Winning cures all ills, and it keeps the birdies singing in harmony. And that's exactly what the Browns are going to need. And in addition to that, if you win early, it breeds confidence in your coaching staff, especially a staff that has just come into a new situation. So that's the layout of the land for the Cleveland Browns, who are going to square off with the Giants later on in the season. Let's now branch out to some NFL-related news. And interestingly, Paul, J.C. Treader, NFLPA president, put up a letter 
on the Players Association website, and he addressed a number of issues that have come to the forefront over the last few days, one of which is the unknown about the preseason. There's been rumors it's going to go from four to two, and then there have been reports that the Players Union voted unanimously. They don't want any preseason games. They just want a long ramp up to week one. The other pressing issue is with respect to training camp and testing and whether or not the players are going to feel comfortable and so forth. I want to read directly from J.C. Treader's letter so our audience is provided the necessary context. And then, of course, Paul, we can react. First paragraph of note is what J.C. Treader says about a joint committee. And he says, quote, as a preventative measure during the COVID-19 pandemic, the NFLPA and NFL formed a joint committee of doctors, trainers, and strength coaches to develop protocols designed to bring players up to full speed in a healthy way when they return. The NFL initially accepted and implemented the joint committee suggestions, including items like no joint practices, no fans at training camp. However, the NFL was unwilling to follow the joint committee's recommendations of a 48-day training camp schedule, despite these experts' assessment that teams face a serious risk of player injury spikes this year based on past NFL data and recent findings from sports leagues that have already returned to play this year, the NFL is unwilling to prioritize player safety and believes that the virus will bend to football, end quote. So very interesting statement by J.C. Treader. And before I get your reaction, Paul, the other thing that was interesting of note that he threw out in terms of the specific data, he said, for example, after the extended break of the 2011 lockout, Injuries increased by 25%, Achilles injuries more than doubled, and hamstring injuries went up 44%. So what the NFLPA is arguing, Paul, they want an extended training camp, essentially. They want to have more than enough ample time to get their bodies ready to go to play in a game because they're worried not just about the coronavirus, they're worried about 2011 repeating itself all over again, Mm -hmm. injuries skyrocketing, and now you're losing players because of the injury bug combined with potentially the coronavirus. I think both sides have positives and negatives on this, but, but I would very much caution anybody who thinks that an initial stance during these conversations is exactly where these people believe they need to be. Because you and I both know when two parties have to go into a conversation and have to decide, okay, how are we going to cooperate to make something happen? They're holding certain things in their pocket as as chips. And sometimes what you do in that initial conversation is you say, this is what I think and this is what I want and this is what I won't do. But you really don't mean it. A lot of times what happens is those initial demands, if you will, or concessions or whatever it is that gets talked about in that first joint session, those things are simply chips that they can use to trade off to get something else as the conversations start going down the line. So I would very much caution anybody who looks at any of these these comments or reactions from either the league or the players union and thinks that those things are in stone and that they are make or break deals for cooperative action taken by these parties. 
This is just the process of negotiating. I think exactly. that's a very fair point. However, I think it is also fair, though, to look at the arguments on both sides. And I would agree with you, Paul. I think J.C. Treader and the union make a fair point about 2011's data and not wanting to repeat that. And let's face it, the owners and the league has every reason to not want to see that duplicate either because if you're paying big money, Paul, to your superstars, you don't want to lose a guy because of an Achilles injury or a hamstring injury, and all of a sudden, the chances of you being competitive this season get completely thrown to the wayside. Well, look, it's bad business for the league if they lose a bunch of their stars to either the COVID or to an injury. When those guys are not on the field, the fans are ticked off. And it's, it's bad business. So I think we are all in agreement that the players union wants everything to be safe, wants everything to be uh, uh, as little risk to injury as possible. And I think the owners probably feel exactly the same thing, which is why this jockeying that we're talking about, uh, to me, doesn't really carry a lot of water. So that was one thing that J.C. Treader, Brown Center, NFLPA president, emphasized in his letter. The other aspect, of course, is the state of the preseason. And he wrote the following, quote, tied to these safe return to work recommendations, which is what we just talked about. There is a similar disagreement in regard to the number of preseason games. The NFL has recently stated it wants to play two. When we ask for a medical reason to play games that don't count in the standings during an ongoing pandemic, the NFL failed to provide one. The league did provide a football reason, though, to evaluate rosters. The NFL also stated that it was important to stage preseason games to check how our game protocols will work. With no medical reason provided for holding any preseason games and the desire to follow the joint committee's recommendations, the NFL board of player reps unanimously voted against any preseason games this season, end quote. Okay, so here we go again, Paul, where you could say, hey, I see it from both sides. I certainly see it from the owner's perspective, and you and I actually had this exact conversation on Monday where I said, I'm in favor of two preseason games because I think going through the logistics of a home and a road game, as well as evaluating the roster, both carry an immense amount of weight. The players' union is countering by saying, hey, those are valid points, but still we're putting ourselves at risk to catch the coronavirus, and is it really worth it for games that mean absolutely nothing in terms of the standings? Well, I think that's why Mike Florio's copy, which came out in the last 24 hours, saying that the league and the union has reached some type of agreement regarding the team travel protocols for training camp and also the preseason. Now, Florio comes right out and says, quote, the document implies strongly that there will be a preseason. However, it does not expressly state that preseason games will be played. I'm not sure exactly how I would translate that. Uh, He does also indicate in his written copy, per a source with knowledge of the situation, the length of the preseason is still being discussed. Well, the only translation that I can come up with, and actually I'm going to have two. Number one, there'll either be one or two preseason games. It does appear that there zero doesn't sound like an option based on what he wrote. Or, or, and this is now how do you define preseason? Is it possible that contrary to what you just read a few moments ago, that maybe instead of official preseason games, they will have cross-team scrimmages. 
maybe the Jets and the Giants, the Steelers and the Eagles, the Redskins and the Ravens, maybe these teams won't have official preseason games, but maybe they will have a day or two of joint practices per se. Well, but and that's that, what they're trying to avoid, though, Paul. I thought they would. I yeah. thought they. I thought they were. But now, after reading this, I'm suggesting that that may be part of the translation because it doesn't seem like, based on Florio's copy, that zero preseason games, nothing. It that does not seem like an option right now. Well, this is yet another example of how the negotiations are very fluid, just like the coronavirus, right? Things are developing minute by minute, hour by hour. When certain people listen to this show, who knows? We could have a very well new development at that point. That's true. I certainly read it to a certain degree the way you're reading it in terms of the NFL I think is trying to fight as much as possible to get a preseason game or two. But I want to just piggyback off of your point about maybe a cross scrimmage. But if the cross scrimmage is not giving you the feel, Paul, of what the atmosphere of a stadium is going to be like, meaning you're actually not going through those protocols and those steps, then it, to me, defeats the complete purpose of having a preseason game. Well, they'd have game. to. They, they'd have to run yeah. this, this scrimmage as a pseudo preseason game with all of the logistics and the protocols in place that they would have used for a preseason game. I'm suggesting that they would then say, look, uh, if, the, if the players' union wants to argue with the, the league and say, well, we're not going to do a preseason game, but you guys are still trying to figure out logistically and physically how you would go through a game day, all right, fine. Let's do one of these scrimmages, and you can go through your game day protocols and give your guys a dry run through all of the rules and regulations that you'd want to use. Speaking of protocols, the other thing that Mike Florio of ProFootballTalk.com points out in his write-up where he summarizes this eight-page document, the NFL also has laid out protocols to focus on the rules for traveling by plane and bus. It also talks about disinfection of hotel rooms, airlines, buses, equipment, luggage, rules for hotel employees and bus drivers. They're also talking about the size of the traveling party, Paul. No more than 110 non-players are allowed to come with the team and no buffets. So once again, this is yet another layer of discussions. And this is why, Paul, I feel the preseason road trip element is so important because all of these protocols, I don't want, if I'm an owner, if I'm a GM, if I'm a head coach, I don't want to experience this for the first time in week three of the regular season. I agree with you. And I That's a honestly, lot. I honestly don't think that a lot of players are necessarily going to be really comfortable going into games that count without having experienced some sense of what the new rules and regulations are going to be. Well, because here's why, Paul, and we talk about this every single season, and even when I've had conversations with players, coaches will even say this. What are they? They're creatures of routine, right? Isn't that a good way to describe pretty much the entire group? Without a doubt. So if you now are interrupting the routine, Paul... I don't want to get used to it for the first time when I have a meaningful game and a meaningful result on the line. That's pretty much my biggest point here. Well, and I don't have a problem with that. I, I honestly believe 
that it's all going to get worked out because both sides have much too much to lose. I think they've learned from what happened with Major League Baseball. And I do think, yes, there's a little bit of push and pull going on right now, but I don't think it's going to reach a degree that's going to put the season in jeopardy. I think if the NFL season winds up hitting some really bad rough spots, it will be medically speaking. It won't be because these people cannot get rules and regulations and and logistics squared away. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So glad you could tune in as we're recapping the latest Giants and NFL-related news. And now here's another layer of the negotiations, another report coming from ProFootballTalk.com. This also coming courtesy of an interview on Sirius XM NFL Radio, NFL PA VP Sam Acho, who he is under J.C. Treader. Mm-hmm. We just talked about his letter. He went on NFL Radio the other day, and he said that the league currently opposes opt-outs of any kind, meaning they do not want to give the power to the players to say, hey, I don't feel comfortable playing this season. I'm opting out. And just to provide a means of comparison, Paul, we're seeing this in the NBA. We're seeing it in Major League Baseball, where players are declaring before the resumption of those seasons, hey, I don't feel comfortable. I want to be with my family. For whatever reason it may be, players have the right to opt out. The league referring to the NFL, apparently, according to Sam Acho, does not want to give the players that option. And this perhaps could create some friction because the players want to have that flexibility. Well, I'll, I'll give you another angle to this, which may be part of a negotiating point once again. Let's say I am player X and I have two seasons left on my contract and I decide that I'd like to opt out for 2020. Does that mean I have two more seasons left on my contract in 21 and 22? Or does that mean I just don't get paid for 2020, but 2021 is still the final year of my deal and I am eligible for free agency after next season? That's a great point because it goes with accrued seasons, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of service time. Bingo. Yeah, when you have somebody opt out, that gets very tricky, which is why they've got to negotiate that, and it's going to be an added layer to the CBA. I will look at Major League Baseball and the NBA, specifically MLB. I know any player opting out in terms of MLB is surrendering their salary. Now, the difference is, Paul, there are guaranteed contracts in Major League Baseball and the NBA, right? So I think if you're a player and you opt out, you feel as if, okay, I've got the security of the contract. The problem with the NFL is if you're a player and you opt out, you know your contract's not guaranteed, so then the player's going to want to say, well, what security then do I have that the team is not going to then turn around and just cut me or whatever it may be or what does it mean for, to your point, future season? So they need to hammer out more details with respect to this before you can even have a handshake agreement. But I can understand why both sides right now are on the fence because I think the NFL and the owners are coming from the angle of, Paul, you could potentially lose players because of the coronavirus. You could lose players because of injury. And let's face it, the NFL, the injury rate in this league is 10 times higher than the NBA and MLB even combined. And now 
you're going to have players opt out. So, you know, what happens now in terms of your roster size and the fluidity of your roster if now you have to count for players opting out? So I get it from that angle. But then I also understand it from the player's perspective because I respect any MLB player and NBA player opting out, especially if they want to be with their family or they have family members that are high-risk individuals for the coronavirus and they're coming and going from home to the training facility. I see it from both sides. I don't really think you can look at this conversation, Paul, and you have to declare, well, this side's absolutely right and this side is absolutely wrong. I think all of these conversations, they have good perspective. It's just a matter of can you find the middle ground to make it as smooth as possible to get the season going? Well, again, Lance, I think that's why the NFL cannot just come out and say, oh, the players union says they'd like to have opt out. Okay, fine. We'll we'll have opt out. Now let's get into the nitty gritty details of give and take as to what the parameters will be when a player opts out. I mean, if the league does that, they've already softened their position and they've given up too much in in the negotiation. They've got to come out and say right away, well, we're not really cool with the opt-out situation, and that's where the starting point is. And now, once you sit down at the table and you start talking about the conditions that will come with the opt-out, that's where you'll get movement on both sides and eventually find a middle ground. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the term conditions because if you think about it, usually you play a minimum of six games that accounts for an accrued season. So I'm just going over in my head, Paul, if you opted out, you're clearly not going to be eligible for an accrued season unless, of course, they tweak the language of the CBA. Because I think what would probably wind up happening is from the owner's the team standpoint, you want the contract to be frozen, right? Because you don't want, especially if it's a star player, Paul, you still want to be able to have that player under your control, right? You don't want that player to go closer to free agency, especially if you lost the year. Whereas from the player's standpoint, the player's going to say, no, I don't want to freeze the contract. <laughs> I still he? get my season <laughs> and let's move on. So, But, but that's what I'm saying. You, you clearly have two individuals in that argument who bring completely different viewpoints to the table, and I would lean with each one of them bringing up valid points, but you got to have to find a middle ground there. No side is 100% right or accurate, I would mm-hmm. say, under that. Again, negotiations yeah. always come down to a give and take. And, oh, you want that? Okay, great. Now, what about over here? (laughs) That's just the way it goes, Lance. 100%. Yeah, and this is why it's, for the lack of a better term, a bit of a messy situation right now. And hopefully, from an optimistic standpoint, the sides will continue to talk. I'd say... The good news is, clearly there's dialogue, Paul, and that's all we can hope for, right? Because we wouldn't have these new angles and stories coming out each day if the sides weren't talking. So the positive is, if any fan is concerned right now listening to this conversation, and once again, Paul and I are not trying to create this doomsday scenario. We're trying to be realistic, and we're trying to look at it from every which angle. I would say the positive is, both sides are clearly talking. They're talking consistently. They're trying to hammer out the sides. And you look at the calendar right now, it's July 8th. July 28th is the start of training camp. It's not as if tomorrow starts camp. They're getting ahead of these issues, Paul, well in advance. And hopefully over the next few weeks, they'll continue to move closer to that middle ground. 
Yeah, I agree with you totally, Lance. And, and I think maybe we should stop calling all of these things fluid and we should maybe start calling them muddy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's <laughs> because, a good way to describe it. <laughs> because they, they really are more muddy than anything else right now. Absolutely. So let's wrap up the show by answering some questions before we sign off. And a reminder, all of our shows are taped this week, so we're not able to take phone calls, but we still want to keep that interactive method going. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions is the website to submit questions or send them directly to us on Twitter. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. You can also use hashtag Giants chat. Okay, we've got one on offense. we got one on defense. Paul, let's start on offense. Phil in Massachusetts writes the following. Why is Daniel Jones always called a franchise quarterback by the media? He suffered some of the same issues listed before the draft. Turnover prone. Compiles stats against weak teams while being terrible against quality opponents. Locks in on receivers, etc. Unless he shows real improvement, could the Giants look for a quarterback in next year's draft? Phil certainly did not hold back in terms of his feelings. Well, he did not. Of course, uh, we could argue uh, exactly the validity of his feelings. I think most people around the league believe that Daniel Jones had a terrific rookie season and holds a tremendous amount of promise. And when you take a quarterback that high in the first round of the draft, not in the third round or the fourth round or the fifth round, but that high overall in the draft, the expectation is that he is going to be the future franchise quarterback until he proves otherwise. Now, We just talked about the Cleveland Browns earlier in this program. They thought that they had Baker Mayfield as a franchise quarterback. He put up some pretty exciting moments during his rookie season. I was never as high on him as the Browns were. And what happened in year two? He came back to earth. Well, now it's year three, and he's going to have to reverse that arrow if he is going to be on the path that franchise quarterbacks are. At this point, Daniel Jones has done nothing to dispel the potential that he could be that guy. So he gets that tag until he proves otherwise. Yeah, I would echo your sentiments. I think when you talk about why does the media label somebody as a franchise quarterback, it comes with the territory, Paul, which is what you alluded to. When you take a quarterback extremely high, especially how difficult it is to find a quarterback and have success. It's not as if these guys grow on trees and you take a guy in the fifth round and he's absolutely going to be successful. So when you take a quarterback that high, comes with the territory. He's going to get the label as the franchise quarterback. So I think that answers that aspect. In terms of the questioner's assessment, I think Phil is very hard on Daniel Jones for a quarterback that, once again, has a very small sample size. And this is what you hit on. Let's see what happens in year two. The, the other thing that I think you can't dismiss is he's also going to be in a new offense with new coaches, and I bring up Alex Smith all the time, Paul. He's the poster child of this conversation. It took him a long time to click, and he was the first overall pick, remember, when he was selected. He was in Aaron Rodgers' draft class, and why did it take him so long? Because stability. 
So, you know, that's something else that you have to monitor with young quarterbacks. But Daniel Jones, to walk away with the numbers he did after his rookie year, 24 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, the completion percentage, the flashes that we saw against the Redskins late in the season. How about the throws into tight windows? Yeah, absolutely. The first start against Tampa Bay. You know, there's a lot of positives in year one to say, hey, if he could handle that on the fly, that's at least a good foundation to build upon. Now, Nobody's crowning him, Phil. Nobody's walking him into Canton right now, okay? We have perspective here at the same time. But if you look at how other young quarterbacks and rookie quarterbacks have handled themselves and you look at what Daniel Jones did, Paul, you're going to tell me you wouldn't take what Daniel Jones provided and say, hey, I would take my chances with trying to build off of that and ride that into year two. Well, let me just ask you this, okay? Jared Goff went very, very far with the Los Angeles Rams, okay? Now, I know they did not get a Lombardi trophy, uh, but since Jared Goff stepped onto the field with the Rams, he's been considered their franchise quarterback. Do you honestly believe that Jared Goff has more potential than Daniel Jones? I mean, right now, there's nothing that leads me to say that I'd put Jared Goff immensely over Daniel Jones. I agree. So, you know? I mean, let's just let's just call it what it is. At this point, Daniel Jones has done nothing to dispel his potential. And until he does, he gets called the next franchise quarterback following Eli Manning. That's just the way it is. Let's go to question number two. And this comes from Chris. One player who I believe, if healthy, can lead the team defensively in several categories— Tackles, sacks, quarterback hurries, and interceptions is second-year linebacker Ryan Connolly. How is he coming along with his torn ACL? I anticipate him being a perpetual pro bowler. If he can remain healthy, will he be ready? Boy, I think now that's that's a bit of a reach. We, we don't even know exactly where his knee stands right now coming off of that serious ACL injury. I mean, my goodness, Lance, you know, it's tough enough for – the healthy players, the newcomers, and the rookies to figure out how this offseason is going to translate onto the field once they get there. Imagine a poor guy like Ryan Connolly who had significant knee surgery. Now, I know his rehab was going very, very well before everything got shut down in March, but this is now July. I have not seen or talked to, to Ryan Connolly in months, and quite honestly, I don't believe the Giants have publicly given much of an update on him at all. We've seen some video of Evan Ingram. I believe there's been a few comments saying that, that he's doing well, but I haven't seen any details about Ryan Connolly's rehab. So to, to make any kind of projection about him right now is premature. Yeah, you have to see him on the field in action before I think we make any bold declarations with respect to his health. If you do the math, though, he got hurt in week four. So he got hurt, Paul, late September. And we're talking about a year removed just about when the season starts. So I think the mathematics, the calendar works in his favor that, assuming there are no setbacks, you hope that he can be in the mix for the course of training camp. Is he 100%? Is the strength back to where it was pre-ACL? Hey, I mean, that's a flip-the-coin guessing game type of conversation. And here's the other thing that I want to throw in just to answer the other aspect of the statement. While I am high on Ryan Connolly, and I really liked what I saw in a very small sample size, he only played 187 snaps last season, which is 
16% of the defensive snaps, just to give you an idea. And he didn't even get through, Paul, four complete games because he suffered the injury against the Redskins. Did he have some opportunistic plays? Absolutely. But if you're going to tell me based on that very, very small sample size that you think you've seen enough to say that Ryan Connolly is, forget being a productive player, Paul, the statement was that he's going to lead the team in several categories, including tackles, sacks, quarterback harries, yeah. hurries. We're talking about an interior linebacker. When is Hold an interior linebacker horses. led yeah. the team in sacks? Yeah. Hold your horses. Yeah. How, about, how about we just sit here and say, I hope his knee is healthy, and I hope he can be a very productive and sound starter. How about we just limit it right there? I'm with you. And that at least is my expectations. I would say if he could get back on the field and be a productive player to compliment Blake Martinez, then I would say, Paul, that is a great step in the right direction for year two coming off a torn ACL. Mm-hmm. I'm totally with you. And leave and, it at and that. And again, let's not forget, usually it takes the second season yeah. after a torn ACL before a guy really gets back to the level that he's going to wind up playing at. Well, look at Marcus Golden. Right? Isn't he yes. a good example? Great example. So you don't have to look that far. Just look at a player that put on the big blue uniform last season, and it took Golden a full season, and then all of a sudden things started to click again. So, and by if, the way, I don't want to say anything derogatory in regards to Ryan Connolly, but if he leads the Giants in sacks this year, that's probably not a very good thing. Yes, I would agree with you there. Now, if he leads the team in tackles, I think the Giants will gladly take that. That's yeah. fine. Okay. Then nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. Better a linebacker leads the team in tackles than a safety, Paul. He, I think we can he, all agree he, with that. Yes, but he just he really should not lead the team in sacks. That's just not a good idea. No doubt about it. So we appreciate those of you who continue to submit questions, giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions, or you can interact with the two of us on Twitter at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. So that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We want to thank Nate Ehrlich again for joining us earlier in the program, breaking down the Cleveland Browns. Stay tuned for Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live as we will continue to preview yet another opponent. Paul, enjoy the conversation as always and look forward to picking up the conversation later this week. You got it, Lance. We'll talk to you soon. So that is going to do it for us here on Wednesday's edition of BBKL. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Stay locked to Giants.com. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Have a good one.